If you like golf, enjoy affordable golf at Magnolia Valley Golf Club, located on Massachusetts Avenue in Newport Ritchie. Play for as little as $15 after 2 p.m. The club has two beautiful courses to choose from, an 18-hole championship par 72, plus another 9-hole executive par 33. Join their open leagues on Wednesday afternoons at 4 and Sunday mornings at 8. Call 727-847-2342 for tee times or visit their website, magnoliavalleygolfclub.com. doing 145 miles an hour per lap at the end of the fourth lap. Blistering pace. They're running Jones, Hoyt, Sutton, Ward, Marshman. And breaking through the field is Eddie Sachs in car number two, making his move to catch the leader. Jones has extended his lead 11 seconds, almost half a mile ahead. McElreath, the rookie in number 15, charges past Sutton and Ward to challenge Boyd in car number one.
listeners, welcome, and you're tuned in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Sitting in with me this evening is my son, Bobby, and on the keyboard tonight is Bill. Bill, how you doing? <laughs> he is the monk of radio. <laughs> the monk of radio. You know the show, The Monk? Yeah. He's got to wipe his hands and do everything yep. and do all this crazy stuff before he does anything? Yeah. That's you. That's me. Yeah, you got to have your, <laughs> your microphones pushed down, make sure that your your nose hairs are trimmed, <laughs> that you put uh, alcohol in your mosquito bites, and you're ready to go. <laughs> I'm ready to go. Okay, well, hey, we had a fun-filled sports racing weekend. We had the uh, Grand Prix of Monaco, Monaco, I should say, and uh, Mark Weber won. Rosberg came in second. Michael Schumacher didn't do too good. His car failed him, but anyway, he was uh, Nico Rosberg's teammate driving with Mercedes. Very fitting because they're both Germans. And, of course, Dario wins the Indy 500. And the uh, Japanese guy, Sato, pulled a really bad move there towards the end of the race. But we'll get into that a little bit later. And then, of course, Kane, I guess, wins uh, the Coca-Cola 600. And uh, But my boy, Mr. Biffle, is still in the points lead. You know who we the should... Ford guards, you know Ford who, guys. You know who we should call? Who? Because they haven't won any races for 37 years. Oh, who's this? Andretti's. Well, now, you know, we had a... Was, Mark, it, was w- it Andretti or... For, who, who was it to have not won anything at uh, Indianapolis in 37 years? I don't think it was Andretti because I know he won in the 90s but again, but... It, it's the whole family. Well, the whole family, yeah. Marco, I'm not sure how he did in Indy. He was, like, within the top 10, but at any rate... Uh, I caught part of it. I didn't catch all of it because I was working. So we got a really good show for you tonight. We actually have a Indy 500 race car driver coming on a little bit later. A couple updates. Let's see what we got going on. Oh, next month is the 24-hour Le Mans. That's going to be a great race. Matter of fact, we have Bob Varsha coming on to commentate for us. And we also have, I believe, David Hobb, who is his uh, partner up there at Speed Channel, who also co-hosts with him and commentates on the uh, on the F1 races and GT races in Europe. So that ought to be interesting to have those two guys on. In fact, David Hobbs used to be a very, very seasoned race car driver, so he's going to have some really, really great stories. Shelby Meet in Watkins Glen is next month. Also, for all you Shelby guys, it is the 50th year of the Cobra, celebrating the AC Cobra. Matter of fact, there's some big shindig going on in California right now as we speak. It starts at 6 o'clock Pacific time. Uh, I think it's something that's commemorating Carol Shelby, and it starts at the Peterson Museum, and it's also being done at the um, Las Vegas headquarters for Shelby American. Unfortunately, I was going to plan on tying that in with the show, but since it starts a little bit later than our show does, about two hours, it didn't quite work out. Maybe we will bring you some highlights next week see what else we got going on oh yeah sumter county fairgrounds swap meet is the first sunday of the month that's uh this coming sunday and tomorrow night quaker steak and lube has got their every thursday car show you got that turntable uh turntable turntables are ready and uh quaker steak and lube is a happening place it's a happening place yeah they got some pretty cool cars they usually have a couple hundred cars that show up there on a thursday night anyway roll that turntable
Hey listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radiant Cars. I'd like to tell you about a great place to eat right on the main part of Clearwater Beach. Located at 333 South Gulfview Boulevard. Crabby's Beachwalk Bar and Grill has two floors of food, drink, and fun. They have daily specials, happy hour, nightly entertainment. Their menu caters to seafood lovers as well as land lovers. Crabby's Beachwalk Bar and Grill, 727-608-2065. They're open in the morning for breakfast until 1 a.m. So stop by and visit my friends, Turtle, Eddie, and Polly, and all the girls and staff at Crabby's Beachwalk Bar and Grill. That's 727-608-2065. Mention Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and you never know, you might get a free drink. That's Crabby's Beachwalk Bar and Grill on Clearwater Beach, 727-608-2065. Hey listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. We all love to eat. Well, I would like to tell you about my friends at the Rib Shack Barbecue on West Bay Drive in downtown Largo. Their menu offers family-sized takeout dinners like delicious ribs, chicken, beef, and pork, or sit-down barbecue dinners, sandwiches, and even desserts. They will also cater your party. Everything is barbecued fresh using real oak for that great smoky flavor. So visit my friends, Corey, Jed, and Kurt at the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 600 West Bay Drive, or call them for a takeout order at 727-501-9090. That's 727-501-9090. They truly have the best smoking barbecue in town. Oh, and be sure and check out their great barbecue sauce. That's the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 727-501-9090. I'm telling Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars sent you. Okay, we're back, and you're tuned in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Hey, by the way, you could Google TamTalk1340.com, and you can pull us up live on the Internet. And we are working on, and that should be up here in the next couple of days, our website, which is Gulfstream Motorsports, okay? And on Gulfstream Motorsports, we're going to have Nostalgic Radio and Cars, obviously. We're going to have Nostalgic Auto on there. We're going to have Beach Rock Radio on there. We're going to have a couple other little goodies on there. Project's Gone Bad. So we'll make this a complete website where you'll be able to buy some of the Nostalgic Radio and Cars uh, goodies, like our decals and our upcoming shirts that we're going to have. We're going to have, uh, our, let's see, Project Gone Bad, Projects Gone Bad, that's plural for all you guys out there, that have more than one junker laying in your garage that you guys may want to advertise we're going to have a classified section we'll probably have some stuff uh parts as well that you can buy and sell so i'll keep you apprised as how that progresses also if you're the ninth caller this evening you can win a ten dollar gift certificate to crabby's Beachwalk bar and grill that's bill's newest hangout isn't it bill and uh also don't forget if you're uh you could also call in and request because we still have some ted nugent for president bumper stickers yeah okay now look nobody's shot my windows out yet look at the phone's already ringing nobody shot the windows out of my truck yet but even if they did i'll shoot back so keep that in mind guys because i'm a gun guy and uh but anyway and he will be coming live in concert i think august 6th okay so in the meantime i'm trying to get him on the radio show hopefully i'll have some success at that okay it's just about time for our guest uh billy's gonna try to get him on the phone here shortly 
What's going on there, Bill? Yeah, keep on talking over there. Keep on talking. <laughs> yeah, because I, I got to get things on my other computer over here. Oh, no. no we're, don't tell me we're having another technical uh, goof up around here. Yeah, for some reason on this one over here, it just kind of went berserky for some reason. So but, we have a, another technical malfunction. You know, we've had this now almost four weeks in a row. We had lightning that took out the computers. We had a rainstorm that took out the computers. And then they just decided to go out at one point in time on their own just because they have a mind of their own. And now we have another glitch. Okay, no, and it's it like... It won't be... It won't won't be a long glitch because I'll just open up another one right here. Okay. Well, be sure. Hey, go ahead and get ready to get our guest on the line because uh, we're just about uh, to the point where we're going to have him on because he's a really super guy and we really want to have a nice long interview with this gentleman. Great guy. Let's see. What else? Man, you believe that? My mind just went blank. That never happens. But anyway, okay, let's talk about cars here for a little bit. You know, uh, the other day I went out and I looked at the cars because all you guys know that I do appraisal. So if you need a an appraisal done or pre-purchase inspection, feel free to give me a call, 727-541-1741. And the other day I looked at a 69... Camaro. Now this car, excuse me, 68. 68 Camaro. This car is a gold car with a brown vinyl top, brownish, kind of, I guess, a brown dark brown. Anyway, this has been in the guy's family since new. Kind of an interesting piece. It was a uh, 350 car, automatic, three-speed, deluxe interior, uh, RS front end, rally wheels, original paint. Now, those General Motors cars were typically painted with uh, lacquer paint from the factory. So when lacquer ages, it just kind of, it kind of crackles a little bit, you know, kind of it crazes, as they say. And uh, so this had a little bit of crazing in the paint, uh, had a little bit of, I was going to say fading, crazing in the bumpers and the chrome and stuff like that. But for the most part, it was a really nice, clean, old, original car. The gentleman wasn't quite sure what he was going to do with it. He basically inherited it from his dad. He remembers riding around in the car when he was a kid. So that was kind of cool. So it had a lot of nostalgia uh, significance to the guy. It had the, uh, it was kind of like, what I said, it was goldish colored, but and it had a corresponding interior. Bucket seat console, automatic on the floor. It had deluxe interior. Really, really nice car and really, really nice, original survivor condition and again you know you put that car up against a car that's been restored and an original survivor car always always in my opinion uh brings more money now we recently had wayne carini on the show here not too long ago and wayne basically does a lot of stuff with collector cars goes to a lot of auctions high-end auctions i mean he just runs the gamut and his and the consensus is and he agrees is original survivor cars really need to be left alone. If you want to restore a car, go find yourself something that really needs a lot of help and and uh, it's in pretty sad shape. But if you find an original survivor car unrestored, just leave that car alone and keep it nice and original. Hey listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. As most of you know, I'm in the car business and often I need cars towed. Well, Kotakis Towing has all the trucks and equipment to meet your needs. Whether it's long distance, short distance, or just around the corner, they can get it done. Kotakis Towing, located at 1141 Court Street, in Clearwater. Also, they have a full-service repair and body shop to meet all your automotive needs. So give my friends Lefty and Joey a call at Kotakas Towing at 727-447-1952. And be sure to mention Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and you might get a discount. Hey listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Let me tell you about my company, Gulfstream Motorsports, 727-541-1741. I have over 35 years experience with classic, vintage, sport, and racing cars. I do appraisals, consulting, and pre-purchase inspections. Before you buy your next rare classic, the car of your dreams, give me a call at Gulfstream Motorsport, 727-541-1741. Also, due to my 28 years experience in the auto salvage business, I am very good with wrecks. So if your car has been in a wreck, call me for a diminished value report. 
Call me at 727-541-1741. You may be owed some money for lost value of your repaired vehicle. That's Gulfstream Motorsports, 727-541-1741. And be sure to tune in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, Wednesdays, 7 to 8 p.m. on the Tantalk Radio Network, AM 1340.
tires because of that. Mario will go back out. You see, they're even changing that left front tire, which they never change. Well, that'll cost him the lead, no question of it. But Danny Sullivan is back out on the race course. I have never seen a person take a spin like that and begin to slide towards the wall and still recover. Let's have another look at it. We're going to have slow motion here in just a moment. I'll, I'll tell you here exactly what I think happened, Jim, even before seeing it. Aerodynamic effects. Watch what happens. I'll bet you that if Sullivan gets in front of Mario, no, I'm dead wrong. It's running over that uh, the white line. The very thing that he was doing that made him so fast, I think, tripped him in this one move. Yeah, Mario's too far back, I think, to have had a, a rear guard aerodynamic effect. But all right, now, Andretti faced with the moment of his driving life. He can't see where he's going. Fade slightly to the left by a miracle. Sullivan stays wide enough to the right, hits nothing, and we may have seen the most dramatic moment of racing, certainly that we're going to see this year. Incredible. All right, and the rest is history. As a matter of fact, that was the famous 1985 Indy win, or the infamous spin and win, for my special guest for the evening. Gives me great pleasure to welcome to the show tonight, Danny Sullivan. Danny, are you there? I am. Great to be on the show, Robert. Thank you very much. <laughs> I know that probably every time you get interviewed, you probably get asked that question. What was going through your mind right when that took place? Well, actually, I was pretty uh, upset. Um, you know, I was pretty angry at myself because I'd just gotten the lead of the Indianapolis 500. Um, you know, my third attempt at it and first time to be leading it. And, you know, I spun the car. And, of course, I'm just thinking, now oh, I'm going to smack the wall. And, you know, just gotten the lead of the 500. It lasted for, you know, 100 yards. And, and anyway, it all kind of turned around. The smoke kind of cleared, and I was facing the right direction. So I had enough uh, sense to take my foot off the brake and try to select a gear. Because in those days, it was only a five-speed, but you had kind of low gears to speed up out of the pits and then two top gears to run. So I was careful not to get the wrong one. And, you know, we don't have any speedometers on there. I don't know how fast I'm going or how much I'd slow down and get the gear. And it kind of almost snapped on me again and uh, radiated into the pits and said, hey, the yellow's for me. The yellow's for me. Everything's okay. And uh, Derek Walker uh, just thought I was talking a couple actives higher than I normally did. But it was, it was, he didn't know. Remember in 85, they didn't have the live camera feed in the pits or anything like that. So he had no idea what went on. He didn't know that I'd spun and continued or anything like that. He he was just trying to work out the what the pit strategy was going to be. So um, it was a pretty exciting time, but I was more upset than anything else. When you did that spin, you came back on all fours and you were heading straight. Was that did you were those tires so seriously flat spotted that they were really thumping pretty bad, or was it? Uh... No, no, because at Indy you don't carry very much downforce on the car. Um, you know, the wings are pretty small compared to what you'd see, for example, them running around down there in St. Pete or a road course or even a small oval like uh, Milwaukee or Phoenix that we used to run. And so they have a real small wing and not very much downforce. So when it spun, it just spun like a kind of around like a top. And obviously it flat spotted them. But if they had not thrown a yellow and I'd had a green, it would have been uncomfortable but I would have been able to continue. 
Now, how much speed I would have lost in terms of miles an hour uh, average lap, I, I couldn't say because I, I came right into the pits. But they weren't particularly bad. Okay. Now at the very then when you got back out of the pits, how many time how how close to the end of the race was that? I can't remember. That was kinda like Oh, no, I still had about eighty laps to go or okay. seventy something seventy eight laps or something in that region. As as time has gone on and the, and if you like the legend has grown, um I had one guy tell me that he was right there and watched me spin on the last lap, come back and pass Mario to win it. Well, that was very nice, but I mean, you know, Mario continued on. It took me a while to gather up, and then when the when we did the restart after that yellow, I was a ways back in the pack. I had to catch Mario again and work my way through traffic, so I didn't, you know, catch Mario for a while. And then there was another incident with uh, Tom Sneva and Howdy Holmes right in front of me that I just missed by a whisker, and again in turn one. And then I that was a brought out another yellow. So then you're there. So by the time I caught him and passed him again, it was it was a ways further into the race, probably another 40 laps. And um, and I do get asked the question about why I kept trying to pass him in one. And but my car was better through three and four than his was, and we were about equal in one and two. So I had a better run on him down into one than I did down into three. And, uh, uh, you know, as you said, the rest is history. Now, explain that a little bit. And when you say your car ran better between turn uh, three and four, I don't understand but what just, difference it would make. Just the balance was better, and I was able to, I was a little quicker through three and four. Um, and because when you go into three, then you have the little short shoot and then come out of four, that's your passing zone because it's a longer straightaway. And my car just seemed to be working better than his, Mario's car in three and four. And so I gain a little bit more momentum on him coming out of the corner. Um, and so I had a better run on him coming down into one to pass him. Okay. That's all. That was a Penske car. You were with Penske back then, right? It was a. It, I was with Penske, but it was actually that was before Roger built um, his car. That was a year prior to it. So that was a March chassis with a Cosworth engine. Oh, okay. Uh, and uh, um, the first uh, Penske that I mean, there were Penskes prior to that, but the first Penske we had in IndyCar was the PC15, um, which was which which came the next year. So how did that bottle of milk taste after that race? Uh, everything tasted good after that race. <laughs> <laughs> it was, uh, you know, it's it's uh, it's such a special feeling, and it's you know it's the Indianapolis 500. I mean, I won the Michigan 500, I won the Pocono 500 twice, and but still, even if I go anywhere, or I'm introduced, or just like you, you know, you talk about spin to win, Indianapolis 500. Nobody talks about the other, the other wins. Not that they they weren't significant, but but Indy was is the is the big enchilada. That's the one. That's the that's our Super Bowl or or, or World Series or you know and. Uh, um, it's a very special deal, and I don't know if you remember the name Alan Prost, who won oh, yeah. four Formula One World Championships. And I saw him, oh, two weeks later at Detroit when they had the Grand Prix there. And, uh, and, and uh, you know, Alan said to me, he said, you know, I'll trade you a couple of my Grand Prix wins for 
for that Indianapolis 500 win. <laughs> it's you like, know, it's a it's a special title. You know, mm. it's just a it's it's our it's like I said, it's our crown jewel for for motor racing, and and uh, you know, I'm honored to have won it, and uh, um, I would have liked to have won more of them, but uh, I'll take the one that I've got. Super. Now let me ask you a question on the as far as racing Indy cars. Uh, and I'll get into your your where you started and stuff a little bit later in a second here. But on the road courses versus the ovals, driving an Indy car, what's more fun to you, and which ones do you enjoy most? Which road courses outside of Indy, outside of the actual well, 500 track? Well, I mean, you always you know relish the ones that you win, mm-hmm. you know, because that's always fun. That Indy was fantastic, but. I started my life as a road racer um, in a driving school in England, and I lived over there for many years. So my background was really more road racing. Um, but if you have a good car and a car is handling, um, you like racing anywhere. If your car That's is true. bad, it doesn't matter if you're on a road course or a or an oval. Bad is bad, and you just you know struggle with it. But it, uh, if I had to say. Um, you know, I preferred my time on road races or road courses than I did on an oval track, and just because that's what I grew up on. Now, which tracks in the United States, as far as road courses for Indy cars, did you uh, enjoy the most? Well, you know, Laguna Seca, which is right down mm-hmm. the road from me, right here in Pebble Beach, California. It was a fantastic track. Um, you know, Elkhart Lake and up in Wisconsin. Um, uh, is up near Kohler, Wisconsin, is a really fun, demanding track. You know, Mid Ohio. Um, they're, uh, you know, they're. I, I like most of them, but uh, you know, luckily I got to race, race them all over the world, and and you know, but if I had to pick a favorite here in the United States, I, I'd probably pick it either between Laguna Seca or or uh, Road America. Okay. Now, you got your humble beginnings in Formula Ford, I guess. Formula Ford, Formula... Formula Fords in, mm-hmm. in England. Okay. And uh, it was a fantastic, um, uh, you know, proving ground and, and place to, you know, just to learn. And it was so competitive. I mean, uh, I did so many races that first year that you could have never have done here in the United States just because of geography and the distances between the tracks are, are too great. There were some times where I'd race uh, two different tracks. Some, even on bank holiday weekend over there, I'd race three different tracks in one weekend because they weren't very far apart. But the competition and the number of people doing it was intense. Um, it was a melting pot from all over the world, from Brazil, Australia, New Zealand, um, you know, some of the big names, you know, Emerson Fittipaldi, everybody was in those, in Formula Fords. And you, it was just a fantastic competition. Did you, um, now you went from Formula Fords and then when you, you went into F3, did you ever get an F1? I don't remember. I don't remember. I did F1 uh, for okay. Tyrrell, the Benetton Tyrrell in 1983. Okay. And, uh, Scored my first world championship points at Monaco, where I started last and finished fifth. And I finished second uh, uh, in a very close battle with Keke Rosberg at the Race of Champions in um, at Brands Hatch in, in the same year. And great experience, but it was also the beginning of the turbocharged era. And uh, Ken Tyrrell 
didn't have a turbocharged engine, so Benetton, the sponsor, left. And unfortunately, when they left, Ken said, I'm not sure I can honor your contract. I may have to take somebody who who can bring some money to the table. And I, had, at that time, had, had an off, offer from Doug Shearson to come back and race in IndyCars for the Domino's Pizza Hot One. Um, and, you know, I sat there and I thought, well, you know, bird in the hand or two in the bush. And and it was the toughest decision I, I think I ever made in racing because I wanted to be in Formula One. My 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 upbringing, my racing in Europe had led me to do that, and I didn't want to give it up. But I also didn't want to face come February, and Ken says, sorry, I can't put you in the car. And um, and then I left with no drive. And so that was my first year in IndyCar, and I won three races that year and then signed with Penske, and my second race for him was the Indy 500 that I won. Super. Let's go back to Monaco, the Grand Prix of Monaco. So you actually drove in that race, the Grand Prix? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Started started last in the rain, and uh, um, and in those days they didn't do pit stops. So I started, and Ken Tyrrell, who was a great team owner, um, has since passed away, and was a great, just a good human being. And he said, "You want to start on? You were going to put you on slicks." <laughs> and I said, "Are you kidding me? It's raining." And he goes, "Yeah, but it's going to stop raining." And uh, he just said, "Just." You know, take your time, nurse it around, and he was right. About 23 laps in the race, it was dry, and the guys that had started on wets all had to make pit stops, and that helped me kind of vault my way up through the field some, and you know, got lucky, passed some cars. Some guys went off, and next thing you know, I finished fifth. Did they have the at the bottom of the hill? You know, when you come out of the tunnel, was the chicane down there back then? Well, it was a chicane, but it was different. You know how they come down the hill and they turn sharp left, and then they go a bit, and then they turn sharp right. Yeah. The old chicane, you came down, and it was just, uh, it was just like a uh, an opening, and you you'd kind of dart left, and then you were out onto that area by the boats. You okay. go left, and then it was a straight shot through it. So it was more just a uh, an old style chicane where it was just opening. Now there was curbing on the on the inside and the outside, but you didn't have to go left and then hard right. You just kind of wiggle through the chicane. And um, but it was yeah, that was there. That's almost like the bus stop that they. I mean, the way it is now, it's like the bus stop at Daytona. You know, where they got that one area on the back straightaway where you have to slow exactly. down. Exactly. Just and they had to because ours were so. It was so quick, and if you came out there and you got the exit wrong, it was a big crash because then and then the the bigger problem was that the track was then blocked. Because right. you were inside. You know how they come out of it, and then they've got that short straightaway mm-hmm. to come up? Well, we just come down and do a quick flick left and right, and and you're on that straightaway. So if you if you messed it up and went off on the left side, you were the debris in the middle of that straightaway all the way down. Oh. So it was it would have it would have really blocked the track, which happened on a couple of occasions. How bad is the blind spot uh, coming through the tunnel now and you're full speed on coming through the tunnel right yeah you're 175 180 miles an hour through there it's from the from the hairpin before that Mm -hmm. um you're flat out 
um, going up through the gears, and that and it's the tunnel's a continuous curve. There's right. no there's no straight, and no, it's it's all curving almost once you get into it. So your car still has to work through there, and uh, it's not you know you run a visor or a, a piece of tape or something across the visor, so it's not too bad maybe for a millisecond right when you come out. Okay. Um, but it's not as bad as it appears on the camera um, when you're when you're following an in-car camera. It's not quite that blinding. Because they consider the Grand Prix of Monaco a pretty prestigious race in Europe. I mean, if you win that race. It's, it's maybe one of the most prestigious races, uh, that, Le Mans, and certainly on the F1 calendar. Not that it's... it's um, it's a very difficult race to pass on uh, because it's just so narrow. I mean, when you come up that hill going up toward the casino hairpin, um, you come up there, it is so narrow, and it's very quick, and there's a couple, it's a little kink in it, and then you got to break over where the road goes left under normal circumstances to go into Casino Square, and it's a fairly, you don't get off the ground, but it's, it upsets the car when you go over the top of that. So your thing is, okay, do I brake before it? Do I try to brake over the top of it? You know, it's it's a tricky little tricky little course. What other road courses did you race in Europe? Oh, um, I mean, everything from Spa to the Nürburgring to Monza in Italy, all the Grand Prix tracks, Brands Hatch, Silverstone, uh, Paul Ricard, you know, Magni Le Mans. Um, you know, uh, Hockenheim in Germany, Ostrike Ring, which doesn't exist anymore in Austria, uh, you know, uh, Mugello, <laughs> Imola, oh, really? uh, you know, just just about every place that you could go. What was uh, the Österreich Ring like back in the day? Well, yeah. what was the Ostrike Ring? Yeah, Österreich, Austrian Ring. was fantastic because it was so fast. Um, and long sweeping corners, and it went up the side of a hill, um, big, and then it would kind of wrap its way back down around, and just fast and long sweeping corners was a fantastic track. But um, it, it fell, the area was hard hit. Um, housing around that in terms of hotel was difficult, and there was some moves to, um, you know, put, uh, Red Bull was trying to buy it to put in a redo it in a hotel, and they had a deal with Volkswagen, and they were really going to make it something. And believe it or not, the locals voted against it. They oh. wanted to keep the area quiet, sleepy, and they didn't want to turn it into a big uh, mega hub for for racing. That's too and, bad. Uh, and so, unfortunately, it's it's still there, but I don't think it gets used very much. Certainly, not anything in in big big time racing. How about Hockenheim? Hockenheim has uh, changed. I raced it in the in the old days too, um, with chicanes, not the real old days with Jim Clark uh, when he was killed there, but still the old way where it went out, way out the back into the woods and came back uh, into the stadium. And they've done a very good job of modernizing it and bringing more of the stadium in place and redoing that so that it's a it's a proper Grand Prix track. It's a it's a you know they've done a very good job there because when we when we'd go back out into the forest, nobody was out there. It was just it was just woods and uh, and so there was no 
spectator, spectators or anything out there, so it got kind of boring while everybody took off and went out in the back until they came back into the stadium. Wow. Um, and they've done a really good job of, of implementing that, you know, the changeover. You know, the track's used almost the entire time that it's not run for races as a Mercedes test track. And it's also, it's, and it's also and open they, to the public, they, too, right? They use it almost... I mean, I think it's used almost every day as a Mercedes stress track for their road cars, not for, for Formula One or sports cars or anything like that, just for their road cars. And I believe it's also uh, open to the public. You can pay to actually drive on that track as well. Uh, the old Nürburgring, you can. Oh, the old uh, one? The, the, the Hockenheim, I'm not sure of that, but the old Nürburgring, is, is, that's okay. how they make money. In, in fact, on weekends... Uh, people go out there and put up their picnic and watch people on motorcycles and cars come, and they got their favorite spots where people crash, and they just, oh. they make a day of it. And and everything, you know, it's kind of run what you brung. You know, if you got a car, you can go out there and and pay your I think it's five euros or something like that for the thirteen point seven or eight miles it is around there, one hundred and seventy two corners. And your own liability. <laughs> well, you sign that waiver when you go out yeah. there, and, that, and yeah, you, you, they, the Germans are not quite like the Americans there. When you sign off on that, you do it at your own risk. Have fun and enjoy, but if you crash, it's all down to you. It's up to you, yeah. Hey, in case you just tuned in, you're tuned in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and my special guest for the evening is the 1985 Indy 500 winner, Danny Sullivan. So anyway, Danny, tell us, uh, you got into GT racing, too. So you raced some Porsches, and you raced some Lolas. Tell us about some of those racing events. Well, uh, I, my, my career started in single-seaters, and I came back here and raced for a while in, in Form Atlantic just for a season, and then the opportunity came to, to race in Can-Am, and uh, um, the team struggled a little bit to start off with, and then we got a Lola, and that you know, transformed everything. And the Can-Am series in those days, and the days that I'm talking about, I'm not talking about back with the the 917-30 Porsches or, or the McLarens. This was when everybody, could, you and I could buy a Lola and put a Chevy in it and go racing. And, and they were mostly Lolas. The Frisbee was out there, which was a fantastic car, and VDS made a car. Um, but the series... Um, was about 10 races long, and it had, you know, Allen's or Senior, Junior, Ray Hall, you know, names like Patrick Tombay, Keke Rosberg, Al Holbert. Um, it was just a fantastic, you know, series. Paul Newman ran a, a team that I actually drove for at some stage in there, and the racing was just great. Big downforce cars, about 600 horsepower, and close racing, and you know, wheel to wheel. Loved it. But I also got to do, you know, sports car racing, Daytona, 24 hours. I won GT1 there with Porsche one year. Um, but I got to drive some fabulous cars there. Sebring, uh, drove for Jaguar at Le Mans, BMW at Le Mans, Ferrari, uh, Porsche, where I finished third at Le Mans. And just, um, I enjoyed the sports car racing. Unfortunately, with my single-seat commitments, I didn't get as much sports car racing as I would have liked to have done. You know, you look back on it and say, boy. But there was conflicts with, with team owners and sponsors and, and stuff that, that just, you know, you couldn't get over. Um, and 
and so it, it just didn't wor- always work out. But um, and and I understood it from both sides. I mean, it was you know that's my full time contract was with a IndyCar team or somebody like that. So they wanted me to be very careful when I went off and raced some of those other things that I didn't get injured or or have a conflict with a sponsor. So. But it, you know, it was a great time. I, I was lucky in my career that I got to dabble a little bit in NASCAR. I did off-road racing in Baja. Um, you know, did the race of champions. Even did ice racing in in uh, Europe for a season. And uh, you know, just I, I've been I've been lucky that I got to do a lot of, of different kind of stuff, vintage racing, and uh, I had some success in all of it, and, and enjoyed myself, and had a had a great career. Well, now that's interesting. Uh, you're the first guest that's uh, actually raced at Monaco that I've talked to, and now ice racing. Tell us a little bit about ice racing because I've never I've seen it on TV. All I can figure or as a guess is that you drive with tires that have huge spikes in it and you're trying to stay on a course somehow. So tell us a little bit how that well, works. <laughs> that, that's not exactly right. But what it is is they, they use these, the ones that I was in were four, they're four wheel drive and actually they're, they're small studs. They're, okay. they're not really big studs. No, the motorbikes that do the ice racing, they have big spikes okay. on them. But the, the car racing that we did is they're, fairly slightly studded. They're a little bit more than what you could get a studded tire on in, say, Colorado or, or some of the states that allow them. And, but they're four-wheel drive, and they, they, you start off, it's got about 40, I think it's about 48 inches of ice. You know, they build it up, and then it's all snow banks. And, uh, you know, the racing's tight. They keep it fairly slow, because if you go off, you just kind of hit the snowbank, and that's about it. But there's places where we used to hit 60, 70 miles an hour, very narrow course, and, of course, almost always sideways and, and you know, nose to tail or side by side. I mean, sometimes you're, you're just looking over at the other driver going sideways completely through a corner. And then uh, we raced in the French Alps. Uh, they don't allow you to race in, in, the, in Switzerland, so it was in the French Alps and then down in Andorra. And uh, and then they had the final in the Stade de France in Paris, a big stadium. And uh, there's, I think when I did it, there were 65,000 people there. And it was great for me because the final was an oval. And, uh, and I won the final, which was really fun because I beat a lot of ex- French Formula One drivers and stuff like that. We had a great time. It was a, it was super camaraderie, and most of them are guys like Jacques Lafitte and Tombe and Gerrier and and Jabouille were were French drivers. It was a French dominated series, um, but it was they were great to race with, and it was just a lot of good fun. And the interesting thing is because we did most of it. It was all late at night because the ski resorts were open. They'd set this thing up, and, of course, they needed the cold to keep the, the ice from melting. And, uh, you know, so you'd, you know, sometimes your final would be at 11 or 12 o'clock at night. How long were the courses usually? Oh, not very far. I mean, if at most. A mile? Uh, probably three quarters to a mile, okay. you know, just wrapped around. And they'd take a big parking lot someplace and build it up, and it'd have, you know, 10 corners in it or 11 corners in it, and, and uh, at the most, maybe a mile. 
It was just, uh, and it was just, it was a hoot and a half. I mean, you just, you giggled the entire time, you know. And they didn't make, uh, some of the bigger cars, some, the in one class where they had four-wheel drive and four-wheel steering, they were more like a rally car. Okay. And ours were uh, the next step down. And, uh, you know, nice sequential box, uh, shifting box, four-wheel drive, and a couple hundred horsepower, which was more horsepower than you needed. You're on ice, so it's horsepower becomes a little bit irrelevant. And uh, always good close racing. And we'd do a couple of heats and then the final, and if you qualified, and it was great racing from Chamonix to, to Andorra. Wow. And uh, they called the Andros Trophy. And it was it was super fun. When did so, you move into uh, sports broadcasting? You went to was it ABC Sports there for a while? I went to ABC Sports, and uh, I had a big crash in Michigan in 95. And uh, so I went to work for ABC slash ESPN for uh, 96, 97, 98 season. And I raced some sports cars, uh, BMW. I was at Le Mans with them during the years when the, when my schedule permit me to you know fit into those type of things and uh, did some you know historic racing but also the the first bit I was still recovering a little bit from the accident that I had I shattered a pelvis um, up at Michigan and took about six to nine months to be fully recovered so um, and so you know that was that was kind of the end of the IndyCar stuff. Plus, I was 45 years old then, and maybe a little long in it for for that. Although Mark Martin's doing a good job in in Cup racing, but uh, I just decided that maybe that was the time to get out of the out of the IndyCars. Maybe somebody was trying to tell me something. Huh. And so, then, but it was you know ABC was a great great run. ESPN learned a lot. Nice to work on the other side and see what it was like. And and uh, luckily I, I got to do some broadcasting for some of the other networks as well, uh, CBS and NBC. Just some one offs here and there, and it was a great experience. Did you cover uh, races in the United States as well as Europe, or were you primarily in the United States? Um, I did. Almost all the race coverage I did was over here. Was over here. I okay. did. I did cover Le Mans for speed and stuff like that. Okay. Now, did you ever? You know, it's funny you mentioned Cup racing earlier. Did you ever get a chance to get behind the wheel of a NASCAR? Um, I did get behind the NASCAR, and uh, you know, I, I I tried to qualify for a couple of races. You know what was interesting about about my time at NASCAR? I got a car for the March Atlanta race, okay? And Kenny Wallace had driven this car at um, in the final race uh, down there, so I think that's November, okay? And he qualified um, pretty well with the car, and I think he was in the top 15 with qualifying, okay? I show up a couple months later, you know, in March, I was three-quarters of a second faster than him in the same car, okay? And he qualified 15th, and I was 48th. <laughs> it just showed how much it had changed in such a short period of time and gotten so much more competitive. And, in fact, when I did my qualifying run, um, Darrell Waltrip came up and said, hey, nice job. Good, you're going to be in the show. <laughs> and I didn't make it. And uh, But I qualified for Indy. 
and uh, um, and that was pretty good for me. And unfortunately, on the first lap, the right side window kind of mysteriously fell out, so they made me stop to have that fixed because you can't run without the you know safety glass in there. So I had to stop and put the glass in, or the safety, you know, it's plexiglass, it's not really glass, but I had to stop and put that in. And, uh, you know, I was seven laps down after when I came back out, and I was seven laps down when I finished. <laughs> so, oh, interesting. You know, it was a good experience, but they weren't um, as welcoming back then. This was in the mid-'90s um, for an Indy 500 champion and an Indy car champion to come down there as they are now to have guys guys come in there it was a little bit more they they would have preferred that i had a nascar background but i mean and don't take that the wrong way everybody was nice to me and and uh uh you know receptive and you know made a lot of friends down there and and they're good racers but it was a very difficult thing as an indy 500 champion and indycar champion to break in down there they that they weren't welcoming me with open arms trying to put me in a good team well, they should have. You're a southern boy. You're from Kentucky, so you know it's kind of a good old boy, Necker. Uh, well, I was, but I, I, you know, and maybe, uh, you know, I needed to be more committed. And what we were trying to do was do a limited number of races, so that it, to get a feel for it, so that the next year I could I could go for rookie of the year. That was the original plan. Oh, that would but, cool. uh, but but I had to stay under five races to do that. Um, so it made it a little bit more complicated, but anyway, it didn't work out, but it was a great experience. And, and actually I drove a stock car, an ARCA car, uh, earlier than that, back in the eighties for a guy, um, out of Louisville, Kentucky, um, named Jim Brown. And, 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 uh, he prepared a car for me down at Talladega. I mean, Tim Richmond was in the race and, you know, all the boys were in the, in the race. I finished fifth. Wow. That's and, good. and it was my first stock car experience, and and enjoyed it. And I got some, I got some tips from the king, Richard Petty, at the at the start. And uh, you know, as knowledgeable as that guy is, it, it paid off. And I saw him after the end of the race. He said, uh, he said, I wish my son would listen to me <laughs> like that. And uh, you know, I had a good result. And, you know, and liked it. It was it was good. I mean, I liked it. It was fun. And and but I just never got the opportunity to you know. To really go back and do it in a proper way. Well, we're just about out of time here. Danny, I want to thank you for coming on the radio show. Don't hang up now. I'm going to put you on hold just for a second, okay? I want to get back with you on the phone here in a second. But I want to thank everybody for tuning in to Nostalgic Radio and Car. My guest this evening was Danny Sullivan, 1985, Indy 500 winner. Everybody drive carefully, stay safe, and love your family. And we'll see you next week.